everyone. Welcome back to the Puzzle Podcast. I'm Janessa Merrill, your host. And I've read a lot of like DMs from all of you and you guys like that I don't have a really super long intro. So I'm just going to get into it. Um, we have Dr. Ashley Wellman here. She's a criminologist and an author of a children's book, The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. Hi, Ashley. How are you? I am so good. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. I've collected so many questions for you because I think as I was researching and as my friends were like looking into it, what a criminologist really was, we started to get super confused. And, you know, as everyone who listens to this podcast, I have no clue about anything. So I'm just super excited to find out everything. You are not alone. Most people don't know what I do, including my parents. If they, <laughs> if, you, if you ask them what I do, they're super proud, but they'll tell you it's something with forensic science or that I'm something like CSI. And I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. all in my head about criminologists are like from shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Cold Case Files. Um, I've been into like murder documentaries recently, but do they accurately like portray the actual process or is it tweaked a bit? So it's funny because as a criminologist, what I am is I'm really a scholar of the criminal behavior of individuals. And so my job is I'm really in the classroom and a researcher. So I'm a professor of criminal justice and we study criminality as kind of a field. And so I think people like to think that we are the forensic scientists or that we are the um, you know, forensic technicians that go out to the scene of a crime, or there were always going to be in a think tank telling the FBI, you know, that we're a profiler or something of that nature. But the reality is, is I am just a researcher who is passionate about understanding why crime happens, how crime happens, kind of the sociology behind crime itself and then how some of the main players in the system you know like criminology is more the mind of crime and how the psychology and sociology works and then you have criminal justice which of course I teach criminal justice so that's relevant too but we look more in criminal justice we look more at the actors themselves so the way that the court operates and lawyers may operate and the way that a judge may make decisions or the way law enforcement may do their job and so it's neat. It's either the study of criminal behavior, the mind of the criminal, that's the criminologist, or it's the criminal justice aspect that is about how the different parts of the criminal justice system work. Okay. Wow. I had no idea. <laughs> I was just thinking like, as you mentioned, like everyone who goes to the crime scene, I thought like, that's what it was. And like, oh, this lamp fell this way. This is why. <laughs> I wish that's what it was. I wish I was like a little Sherlock Holmes, but I'm not. <laughs> I will tell you, one of my passions is making sure that I am involved in the field. Not everyone who's a professor or who stays in academia is, is uh, willing to leave the ivory tower. And for me, that's something that was really important was to always be in the field and to understand whoever or whatever I was talking about. And so in graduate school, I had actually reached out to a cold case unit in Alachua County, Florida, and said, can I come and work with you for free as a research consultant while I'm finishing my PhD? And of course they said, absolutely not. <laughs> that was their first response because typically as someone who's you know an academic, you can be a little bit off-putting, right? Because you might behave as if you're the expert. But I, I called him back and I said, you have to let me come. You're the expert. I need to learn from you. And I really want to understand how cold case homicides work. And that had kind of been my passion. I was going to look through case files and understand what it was about an unsolved murder that made it more complex or different from a traditionally solved homicide. And that radically changed I was in the cold case unit for about three years. I worked alongside Detective Bob Dean and Detective Heather Phillips, and they were just the coolest, most amazing humans. They're the ones that were the ones out in the field trying to figure out what happened. But I was there more telling them, you know, have you thought about this or looking at it from a different perspective or a theoretical perspective. And one day a mom came in and she just said, I want to know what the expletive happened to my daughter. Her case had been, you know, cold for about over a decade. And they just grabbed me and said, oh, Ashley will tell you about her case. And so I had never talked to a family member in my life about their unsolved murder. And yet here I was with this mom. And in that moment, I really discovered that she just needed somebody to listen to her. She knew that there was not an answer in her daughter's case. She hadn't flown from New Jersey down to Florida for an answer. She just wanted to say like, I have not forgotten. You cannot forget who my daughter is. And from that point forward, I've been working alongside these survivors or the family members 
of these cold case homicides. Yeah, I definitely think like cold cases are super interesting. And from my perspective, like as I see it, is even if you do find like who caused this, who's the murderer, does it actually like give people peace? Because I mean, I have never experienced anything like that. I think like the only thing I could think of is one time my wallet got stolen. Well, in my head now, it's like, maybe it's my fault, but I still think it's stolen. It's not your fault. No victim <laughs> blaming on the show. No victim <laughs> blaming. <laughs> no one deserves other wallet taken. Yeah. But like for like the whole week, I was like on Google maps. I'm like retracing my steps and everything. And, you know, I come to the conclusion, like, okay, if I find who did it, does that actually bring my wallet back and like save me all this time I think it's just more like accepting like this is what happened and move on you're you're right so these families some of them you've got to remember they'll have a case 20 30 years without answers and the problem is people assume you hear reporters all the time oh we want to bring this family closure we want to bring this family you know answers Answers is one thing, but closure doesn't really exist. I've had a lot of families tell me, please don't use that term, right? That term does not exist because in our heads, if you picture someone murdering the person you love the most, if you close your eyes and you said, okay, I'm going to picture who could kill the most precious person in my life, it's going to be a monster, an absolute monster. And particularly, let's say it's five years, 10 years, 20 years into the future after the murder, that person has become more and more and more of this demonic being in your head and then if they do find out who it is a lot of complications come about because sometimes that person isn't that big of a monster in fact a lot of times it's someone you know or their friend right someone who knew the victim so that is more agony it could be someone in your family and imagine that realization that now you're losing that family member and you have the deceased victim uh, it could also be that the person's dead. So it's been 10, 20, 30 years. So this, the suspect or the offender is dead. So there's no justice in that whatsoever. Or I've had families say, you know, I had pictured this, this horror character. You know, it's this Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, you know, Mike Myers or something's coming out. And then there's this weak, broken addict or teenage kid or something that's just, you know, pitiful. It's like just pathetic. And you go, my God, that's not who I had built up in my head. There's some kind of like, there's still a human being too, or you meet the mother of the offender who's just as heartbroken as your family is. And so there's a lot of complex emotions that go into it if there's somebody caught. And then if there isn't, right, there's all these what ifs and yeah. what, you know, who is it? And if, if you don't know who it is, then how do you know who didn't do it either? So that lack of trust and that lack of ability to bond with people is really difficult too. I just watched, I think it's called American Family Murder Next Door on Netflix. And I was just like shocked because the entire time I was watching it, I'm like, no, it can't be the husband because X, Y, Z, because, you know, this is, these are his kids. And I was just like giving him the benefit of the doubt when it says in the title, it's like family next door, like he has to be involved. I'll tell you that case blows my mind because there, there's a million things. One, the answer is always pretty easy, right? So I listen to these podcasts and, <laughs> and there's all these theories. Oh, oh my gosh, this, you know, drifter came in and all these different theories. It usually is, is the most basic answer possible, which yeah. in that case, right, it's her, it's her spouse. But what blows my mind about that is the narcissism and the, the psychopathy behind the fact that this guy thought, and could, like, I, I can't even imagine hurting my child, but could easily dispose of, kill and dispose of his children, this woman who mothered his children, like, I don't care how bad your relationship is. Divorce yeah. wasn't an option, or maybe, you know, separating or those kinds of things weren't an option. And I still am, I'm still very perplexed of how he thought, one, he could get away with it. And two, you can go on and have a relationship with someone else when you know you killed and disposed of other people you supposedly love that were your genes I know no concept of how I think like the craziest part was when he was like on the news and he was like I just want my family home and like bring back my wife my kids and in the beginning when the cop was like going around their house he's like yeah their blankets are gone it's like he knew oh, I mean of course he knew he did it but <laughs> yes but he already did it and he was like trying to like play it off and I was just like what that I can't even imagine. It's bizarre. You'll see the killer themselves like up in the media a lot of times, a lot of cases, they want to be a part of it and be one of the stars in the story. And that's very, 
Very disturbing. And the thing that bothered me about that documentary, just like you said, with your wallet, like maybe it was my fault. (laughs) There was a lot of, well, she belittled him while she was abusive and granted spousal abuse is not okay. That's a terrible disposition to be in, you know, in a position to be in. But the reality is, is I don't care what she was doing. I don't think homicide was the, the method, you know, the answer to that, but I felt a lot of victim blaming on that yeah. case too. And saying like the mom's responsible for the fact that her babies got killed and she got killed nuts. I know it's so insane. And like the way that he was continuing, like trying to lie until they like brought his dad in and then he confessed. I'm a terrible liar on my own. And I just can't imagine like going to the extent of lying. I can't imagine acting normal after that. If I say something in a tone I get off the phone, I'm, I, you know, for three days, I'm going, God, did I say that right? Should I call and apologize? Oh my gosh, yeah. I hope I didn't hurt their feelings. And then you think about someone could literally kill and dispose of them and then go on as if nothing happened. And that's, that's the crazy thing about him. He's a family annihilator. So he took out his family, but then, I mean, serial killers do the same thing. They have their little killing spree and then go back to normal and resume normal life until their next kill. It's definitely a bizarre psychological trait that they have. That they are a really like a whole other breed. Like for me, even if I just have a bad day, I'll think about that one bad day for the rest of the week and like my whole persona changes. So it's crazy, but there are so many cold cases out there and like all unsolved mysteries, which do you think are the most interesting? I think what's crazy just to, before I answer that is that you have the clearance rate used to be 91% in our country back in the 60s, early 70s, 91% of cases would get solved. And now it's down to 62, 64%, which means you have 36% of cases every year going unsolved. And it's terrifying. And and there's so many complex elements that go into that. The nature of homicide has changed, gang memberships, um, and the distrust of the police is another challenge that they face. No one wants to talk to them. And until it happens to their family, no one wants to get involved uh, in the community. And so there's been a lot of really complex, uh, complicated issues facing law enforcement and, and anyone who's investigating a homicide in the last several decades. But what's most interesting to me? Um, you know, I don't study this, but I think the people that just disappear, I think that's terrifying because as a family member that hope of maybe they're still alive, I think can turn to dread. And I've had a couple cold case homicide families who they never recovered the body. So they're in this kind of limbo of saying, okay, the police believe she's dead because of several reasons. Her cell phone was left behind, her wallet was left behind, all these things. Like she couldn't have run off with this. But then there's also that struggle of, could she be trafficked right now? Um, Could she be being tortured by somebody? I mean, you hear of these crazy cases where 20 years in captivity and then they're returned you know, released or or discovered. Um, And so I think those haunt me a lot because there is some solace in, in getting your loved one's body back and knowing they're safe and they're not hurting anymore, that you know where they are and that they're at peace and you can kind of start to process that. Um, I think it is the families where they don't have a body and there's the what if, yeah, you know, or where are they? Those intrigue me the most. They're unsolved mysteries, the latest, I, that used to show used to haunt me. I it used to scare me so much because I'm not I'm not a big fan of ghosts and aliens. They very much weird me out. As do horror films, which is funny because <laughs> I study death. But there's something about the suspense of those. But there's something unsolved mer- mysteries really used to freak me out. This latest season, the one about the husband committing suicide from the hotel, that one is. It's so intriguing. Have you seen that season? Have you? I haven't yet. (laughs) Supposedly, police declared this man's death a suicide, where he, quote, jumped from his hotel through this roof of a nearby building. But it's like a 45 foot, don't quote me on that, but like 45 foot jump out. No human, you know, only Wonder Woman or somebody could jump like that. And the wife is determined to say, this is a homicide. There was something shady going on at his work. He was super nervous when he left the house and anxious to get out. And the way the scene was, there's no way it could have been a suicide in her, in her opinion, as well as several experts. And so stuff like that just blows my mind. And one of the problems is the original investigation, if it's flawed, you're in big trouble because 20 years later, trying to go back and figure out what happened is is hard. Yeah. And I think with those shows like Unsolved Mysteries, 
I watch it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to figure out who it is now. Or like at the end there, they try to give like a description of who it is. And I'm like super paranoid all the time now. I'm like, oh my God, it could be like around me. Um, I love the descriptions. You know, it's like tall, white, male, <laughs> white shirt and jeans. You're like, all right, well. <laughs> like literally everyone. <laughs> Every man around me. <laughs> yeah. But it's just crazy, especially like now when I just, especially around our area, I just see so many like missing person, like flyers everywhere or like posted on the internet and I just remember like when I was younger going to like I had to walk to school so my parents are like okay so if someone comes up to you and like asks to drive you home they know us like just don't unless we tell you like we're gonna pick you up or we're gonna meet here and I just think it's crazy that it's still like now I see it even more because of course when you're a kid you don't understand anything like why would someone want to go take me like that does not make sense But now it's just so scary. And even when I go out with like my younger siblings, I'm like, you have to stay close. You have to like walk right in front of me. And And it's so different now. I feel like the trafficking, you know, human trafficking. And we actually had, when I was a little girl, we had um, an amazing human. She's wonderful. And she got returned, thank God, but um, had been kidnapped from our very small town. And it was terrifying. I remember I signed up for Taekwondo right after that. And, you know, we were all trying to see how we could protect ourselves, but it was in this quaint, small, you know, idyllic town and it happened there. But now there's no way I'd let my daughter play out in the front yard, which is really sad because I just don't know. Um, We live in a, in a very sweet area, but there was a mother and daughter walking down the sidewalk on an early evening walk. It was still daytime and a car pulled up and grabbed the little girl from her mother and drove off. And the mom, you know, was like trying to hang on to the car. He drove off and thank God social media went crazy. She described the car police responded right away. Cause it was a little girl, like six, I think very little. And they found the car at a, at a motel, you know, several hours away, but, or several miles away, but very easily she could have been in a, in a trafficking kind of scenario I believe that's what they linked it back to and it was terrifying you know like 10 minutes later she could have been somewhere else and yeah you just don't know it's hard because you want to trust everybody and you know I get in trouble from my friends and family they're like you're too vulnerable you're too trusting and on the other hand I also act super paranoid about I also study sexual assault so anything (laughs) lighthearted. but but same kind of thing where people go Ashley you need to relax you would know who's going to hurt your child and I'm like but you don't it's really great people who have established a trusting position that are very likely to be the type of offender that would hurt her so you you can't say oh well you're you're clergy is fine and oh a coach is fine and oh a police officer is fine because or a doctor. I mean, look at Larry Nasser. You don't know that they're fine. And it's the people that, you know, build that rapport that are the ones that are able to get away with it. So I'm like, nope, absolutely not. That baby is not out of my sight. And so sometimes she's going to hate me for it. <laughs> but my prayer is that she's <laughs> I was listening to this podcast and it's all about like doctors murdering their patients or whatever but like doctor to give like too much morphine or like other family members would tell the doctor like oh you need to like do this so that they can get insurance money and I'm just like that is insane because you have to trust these people with like your health and everything and they're the ones committing these crimes and I just like oh my god who do I who do I trust there's tons of famous cases about nurses who kills so, like the angels of death or mercy you know and um doctors who kill their dentists who kill it's It's wild. I think like, well, one unsolved case that I think I've just been obsessed, well, not obsessed with, but like I had a phase of obsessing over it was the Black Dahlia case just because it was so well known and it's in movies and everything. And even my brother and I play this video game and they use characters from like a fairy tale thing, but it was like a twisted, it's like, but I don't know, but it basically mimics the murder basically. And I'm just like, how is it still unsolved when so many people know about it? But you said you had a cold case that was like a decade old. So do you think that these unsolved cases can actually have an end to it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, My question, real quick, the Black Dahlia, there's been, I think, a couple people who have come forward to say, oh, it had to be my dad. It was definitely my dad or, you know, this and that. Have you seen some of those stories, the conspiracy theories? So fascinating. Just like the Zodiac Killer, there's a man who claims, you know, his dad was the Zodiac Killer. I think another man claimed the, the Black Dahlia killing, but... I'm not, I'm not sure if we'll know about all that, but 
Can they be solved? Yes. The interesting thing about a cold case is that we hear all the time, the first 48, the first 48, the first 48 with a murder case. But as you go further and further out, five years, 10 years, time actually stops being your enemy and it can be your friend. And the number one thing that happens is that typically it's going to be very, very difficult to get much more evidence than what you had at the original investigation, which is why I said, if it's butchered at the original investigation, you're in big trouble uh, because that evidence is pretty much all you have. And it's very difficult to go back and try to recreate anything that was at the scene at that time. But over time, one, science gets better. So you do have things when preserved correctly, which is a problem, but if preserved correctly, you do have advancements in technology and in science that allow you to do radically different things. Just look at a case right now from 1970 or 80 even, that DNA evidence, if there is any blood, any human um, you know, bodily fluids or anything in that case, now we can make a picture of the person's face and show it to people from a single cell, right? Yeah. This is what the person's going to look like. And so um, that's incredible. So the science alone, you're able to say, you know, a trillion to one odds, it's this person, or people are starting to do the ge genealogy things like you saw with the Golden State Killer and several other killers since that, hey, there's a, there's a first cousin located here. Who are their family members? It has to be someone in this mother's line of blood. And they're catching killers like that from the advancements in technology. But more likely, it's going to be that somebody comes forward and says something that they didn't say a long time ago, because relationships change. In 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, a lot of things can change. I could be your girlfriend at the time you kill somebody, and then you were super nasty to me, and we broke up. And you know, 20 years later, I see a, sh a show, and I'm like, ah, I feel bad. I have no loyalties to him anymore. I'm going to make a phone call. Um, the offender could die and the guilt you felt about trying to protect them, you might come forward at that point. People who might've been scared because they were in a gang, they lived next door to the offender. Those different types of complexities could go away as well. And so, or they could know the person's in prison and say, oh, wait a minute. Okay. Or, or now with CODIS, let's say that the crime happened 20 years ago and that person their DNA wasn't something that was registered, but then you enter that into CODIS because you were reprocessing the information. CODIS is of course the um, national database of, of DNA, but you enter that into the system and you know, 15 years later, the person does a burglary and or something and they're convicted and they're arrested and their DNA goes into CODIS and then there's a hit or other crimes happen that start linking the offender to multiple crimes because it might be an unknown offender, but there's eight rapes or eight murders in the system for them. So it's interesting. Time, time isn't the enemy anymore. It becomes a friend. And so it, I definitely think there's yeah. a, a opportunity for these cases to get solved. I think one of the things that I've seen with families is that families that refuse to let the name go out of the media, it's so exhausting for their families because they have to constantly be reliving the trauma. But when their loved one's name doesn't leave the media, the police keep focusing on it. And so it's one of those kind of double-edged swords you're not able to really grieve and heal and move forward you're never going to move on but move forward because you're caught in this I have to constantly be their advocate and their voice or else it'll go away completely they'll be forgotten so there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure on a family's shoulders but also we've seen it work when you refuse to be quiet and you refuse to let the police yeah. look away a lot of times those cases get solved and the community gets involved or a podcast picks it up and the whole community goes, whoa, you know, it has 2 million followers. Everyone's wanting yeah. to know what happened to this girl. And then you start seeing resources be put on the case. I definitely think like, cause I listen to like a ton of podcasts or shows and they're, they go through a famous serial killers, like life timeline. And they'll be like, oh, they just got sloppy here. And that's how, you know, they got caught. And I just yeah. think, I don't know, understand like, well, how can you get more sloppy just because it wasn't solved that suddenly? I think they get, I think they get cocky. I do. I think in, in a serial killer's case, they get cocky. Um, a lot of times, you know, with a, a homicide, a, a traditional homicide, just a, you know, one, one victim, one offender. I think, you know, there's so much that can go into that uh, under the intoxication, a robbery gone wrong, revenge, those different types of things. Um, hatred for the person because of a lover's quarrel. But with a serial killer, I think it's this art and it's their 
you know, it's sick to say, but it's like their passion and they're good at it. And so they're getting better and better and better, but they also are getting cockier and cockier and cockier. So they'll do things that might expose themselves because they think they're that grand. So you see um, like BTK reached out to the media and wanted attention. So how stupid, right? (laughs) Had you just shut your mouth, no one would have known it was you. Um, The happy face killer, uh, Keith Jesperson, I remember he, he ended up kidnapping and murdering, I believe, or at least kidnapping think murdering as well. Someone he knew, which is a big no, no, you don't kill someone, you know, you don't kill where you live and you don't kill with anyone else. Those are like three known. (laughs) Don't do these or you're definitely going to get caught, but he took someone he knew. And therefore the first people we look at are the people close to you because that's typically who hurts you, whether it's murder or rape or whatever, it's typically someone who knows you. And so it's those kinds of things, right? Thinking you're so good at your craft yeah, that you can get brazen or try to get more attention or try to get more publicity. And then thankfully you are an idiot and police are able to catch you. So I was watching, well, I think this happened in Bates Motel. It was a while ago, but there was a scene where he killed someone and he cleaned the knife and put it back. So the cops couldn't technically find the murder weapon. Now, what is your opinion of that? Is that a smart idea or do they, when they invest, they like look through everything (laughs) well i mean they would probably take they would probably take evidence from the scene especially if the body was there they would find anything sharp around the thing but it's very difficult everyone says oh it's the perfect murder there is no perfect murder like you said there might be oversight which allows for someone to get away and human error which allows for somebody to get away but there's no perfect murder. It's you watch all the time where they're like, oh, we spray luminol and the person had tried to clean up so much. That's cool. But then they'll like lift the tile. You can't clean underneath a piece of tile. You know, they'll crack out a piece of tile and there's blood in the grout, you know, or there's there's blood in the drain, you know, and you didn't see it. So you were cleaning everything else with bleach and all the bleach ran down the thing, but there's a tiny speck. It just takes a tiny speck of evidence. And like I said, there's now um, technology where I can have a cell and give it to the technician and they can develop a face and your descent and everything else. This person's gonna have blonde hair. They're gonna have blue eyes. They're gonna have a round face because of the ethnicity of what, you know, the region of the world they're from. And so it's, there is no perfect murder. Let me put it that <laughs> way. If you're, if, you're, if you're good enough to try to hide things and maybe it gets overlooked, I would say you're more lucky than a perfect killer because I watched that and I was just thinking that is so genius because in every other show or scenario they do the most hiding the murder weapon like burying it or doing whatever to it and I'm just like of course you're gonna get caught that way but this one I've just never seen it before you I mean like you said maybe that is that would probably be something that could get overlooked because they would be looking for a missing knife in the butcher block or something like that but but then again um you had I don't know if you remember the Amanda Knox case, which was a cluster of an investigation over uh, in Europe, total cluster. But remember they had recovered a knife from the kitchen, from the kitchen and said, oh, they, this is the murder weapon that they use because there was a a speck of DNA from, you know, from the victim. And it's like, well, yeah, we all lived together and I probably had some of her on me and it probably came off on the knife when I (laughs) ate dinner with my boyfriend. And yeah, it's... (laughs) It's all a mess. I think it depends on how well the investigation is done more than it depends on how, you know, perfect, you know, quote unquote, the killer was. So I want to switch gears here because you're also, you're not, you're also a children's book author, which being a criminologist, (laughs) author, I feel like are such polar opposites. Surprise from murder and rape to children's books. (laughs) Well, what inspired writing this book? Well, okay. So um, two seconds, sad story. And then we'll go back to that. Um, (laughs) I think I had found so much, uh, one, I love the work that I do as a criminologist, not only because my students are phenomenal, but the survivors I work with are phenomenal, both my sexual assault survivors and my homicide survivors. And they really defined hope and resiliency and grit in my life. Because I look at these families who have lost their most precious gift. I can't imagine losing my baby or losing my spouse to murder or something like that. And I remember every time I would go talk to a family, I'd get in the car and I would thank God that I did not know trauma. I'm very blessed. I've had a lot of rough events in my life, but not trauma. And so that was always kind of this thing that I felt blessed to say, I have a platform and a voice that people will listen to. So I'm going to use that for these families. And then in 2018, um, my daughter and I watched my husband die in our home due to a pulmonary embolism. He 
just collapsed in our home. And he was 44, super healthy. I was 34. My daughter was four. And it was the most nightmarish moment I I pray I ever have in my life. But my whole world ended in 90 minutes. So we watched in our home while he was struggling to breathe. When a pulmonary embolism hits, it's just a clot that catches and it didn't allow any oxygen to get into his uh, lungs. And so we witnessed his death. And of course I I was in the hospital with him um, before they pronounced him dead. And in that moment, I felt like I just lost everything that I was. So I had been this, you know, emerging scholar who was an international speaker and, you know, on this news station and this news story and this publication and none of it mattered. None of it mattered. And then I found myself as, um, you know, I was struggling to really know who I was as a mother. We had also suffered four miscarriages and now my spouse died. So I was never going to have the second baby. I didn't want to be a single mom. I didn't know how to parent a grieving baby. My best friend was gone. I was now not a wife anymore. And then this idea of scholar was getting rocked professionally because grief just changes us and it changes kind of how other people react to us. And so there was a struggle at work as well, where a very small group of people didn't feel like I quote fit anymore. And so I felt lost. And in that darkness, I started writing because a dear friend of mine, he's actually a colleague and now one of my best friends, but he had seen a picture of Reagan, my daughter dancing with this little poseable skeleton. It's been her best friend since she was two. She's six now. But he saw this picture of her dancing with this skeleton Fresno. And he said, that is the weirdest, coolest picture I've ever seen in my life because she should be scared of this skeleton. And yet she's not. So society says he's scary and she sees beauty and friendship in this skeleton. And he said, you should write a children's book about that. Give yourself a break from all of the heavy lifting that you're doing emotionally for other people And why don't you just take time to like laugh and smile and create for yourself? And so I said, okay, okay. So, you know, I sat back and I wrote this book, The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. And at the time, it truly was just a way for me to heal and to kind of survive the trauma of losing Buddy, my husband. And over time, as the stuff at work was kind of shaking out, I I thought to myself, like, what am I trying to prove? What am I trying to prove here? Because... I've already accomplished so much and I I will forever be this advocate for my families and I will forever be a voice for survivors. But what am I trying to prove in a situation that like the box is getting smaller and I'm not fitting in that box? So I said, what if this book became not a way to survive, but it became a way to thrive? And I remember picking up the phone and calling my illustrator, Zach Kincaid. He's Thomas Kincaid's nephew. Thomas Kincaid was the painter of light, very famous artist. Zach is equally, if not better. Thomas Kincaid collectors will hate me for saying that, (laughs) but Zach, I think is even better as an artist. And I remember calling him and saying, Hey Zach, this is for real. It's about to get real. I'm going to go full steam ahead with the, my friend Fresno franchise. I'm opening my own small business. I'm going to, you know, so I walked down the courthouse, file a small business application, start working my rear end off to make a plush doll puzzles, my children's book. And Zach, thank God is just this incredible artist who brought it to life for me. And now Fresno is a lot of things. Fresno is this example of reclaiming life after trauma. And it's this beautiful story of Reagan and her best friend Fresno. And it starts by saying, I used to be afraid of monsters under my bed, but now I welcome them. I've learned scary things are often just misunderstood. And in 2020, I think that relates to so many different things because I think we are so scared of people who are a different race, a different religion, a different ability, a different sexuality. And the reality is, is there's nothing scary about any of that. In fact, it's beautiful if you took the time to get to understand that person or thing. And so because Reagan takes time in the book to let Fresno know he's super special and all the different reasons that he's special, then he starts to believe in himself. But even more so, Reagan starts to learn things too. Like it doesn't matter what you look like or what your family structure is like, or if you, you know, like the same kinds of things that at the end of the day, we are all better together, make no bones about it. So, (laughs) so it's just a really fun, yeah, it's just a really fun story that I pray is 
just the start of a legacy Reagan has because she lost her dad. Reagan is one of the most empathetic, compassionate human beings. And one of the things I do with her is I talk to her about the fact that, yes, I don't minimize the fact that there's a lot of struggle in that scenario. And that, yes, that's always going to be something that she has to deal with. But I also always make sure to highlight what beauty has come from the disaster. Do you know what I mean? And what beauty has come from the love that she had of her dad and the character of who he was. And so my hope is that one day, my friend Fresno, this is just book one. So we have like Fresno finds his heart and Fresno's first Christmas and other books. But my hope is that kids see themselves either in Reagan, maybe they're the older sibling of a child with special needs, or maybe, um, you know, they're the best friend of someone who has, you know, two dads or something like that. And, or they're the skeleton that isn't accepted you know, and, and they find that they really are perfectly beautiful, just the way that they are and how important it is to seek out the tribe that'll support you in that journey. Definitely. And when I was reading the book, all I could think about was how in art, because I took like back-to-back art classes in high school. And I, for some reason, my go-to piece, because it was just so easy for me to draw like a skeleton head and have flowers come out of it. And I feel like that is so popular and if people get that tattooed. And I was starting to think like after reading the book, I was like, yeah, we're just all skeletons. We're all the same at the end. And, you know, when we take away everything else and we're just bone like what do we stand for and like who are we when that's all gone and that's all I felt or the autumn when I read that book you know it's funny that you say that because another show that I was on the woman said oh you're Fresno and I said no I'm not Fresno is my daughter's you know (laughs) posable skeleton that we've had in the family for four years and she said no you're Fresno and I said well go on you know and she said well you just said it like you were stripped of every single thing that you thought you were right. So I, I had the multiple miscarriages. And so like motherhood was kind of stripped away from me in the form I wanted. And then, you know, my, my role as a wife was stripped away from me. And then my role, you know, not, not the role itself, but like the position of the scholar changed and shift radically. And so she said, and then you were just left just the bones. And how are you going to pick it up and dance anyway? And I went, Oh, my God, (laughs) my God, maybe I am Fresno. And you know what? It wouldn't be far off because Reagan has been the one who fearlessly has reminded me how brave and strong and special I am, even on my ugliest days, right? She's still the one that's there to tell me how perfect I am just the way that I am. And I love that it's a skeleton, but I just, I don't know if it's just me, but I've never been afraid of skeletons just because my mom was a physical therapist. So the amount of times I've seen a skeleton and I'm like, okay, this is my body. Like what, what is so scary about that? Sure. It could be like a dead person, I guess, but they were still a person. And that's all I thought. And I think it's how I grew up that my parents just instilled in me that to be afraid of the demon and not like crazy monsters that media has put out there, like the boogie monster in your closet or whatever. I was never afraid of that. It was just more of like, the demon is what you should be afraid of mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. love that it's a skeleton <laughs> and it's and it's so cool because it's cute everyone's like oh my gosh I need it for Halloween I'm like no you need it all year round it has nothing to do with Halloween he just happens to be a skeleton the reality is it's a story of friendship and inclusion and diversity and celebrating who you are as a human being and so I laugh because I'm, you know, it's just coming out. It's on its way to me, actually, on a, on a shipping truck right this second. And everyone's like, I hope I get it before Halloween. I'm like, I do too. But if you don't, <laughs> this story truly is just a celebration of humanity and friendship. And so I cannot wait to have more people read it. I'm glad you loved it. Do you have a favorite part? I think it was like when he was playing soccer. <laughs> yes, his leg fell yeah. off. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yes. All I could think was just me. When I play soccer, I'm like all over the place. I I lose yeah. the ball. I like trip all over the place. I'm like, that's me. And yeah, and then, <laughs> and then it's like Fresno, right? No one wanted to play with him. They thought he was too fragile. He was too scary. Or they even called him a bonehead. I remember one time where we were all at the park and all my friends were starting to play baseball. And I'm like, okay, I want to play too. But they know that I'm not, I don't have very good hand-eye coordination. And slowly, like one by one, all of them would like leave and out of the game. <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever. We're not going to play baseball. (laughs) Guess what? Let's try something different. (laughs) They just don't include me in sports. And I would pick you. I would pick you for my team. It's not about winning. It's about having fun. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But if you could choose just one, would you rather be an author or a criminologist? You know, oh, that's hard. Um, 
at this stage of my life, I think an author because I'm creating worlds that not only are helping us heal, but I think have the ability to transform people's lives on a more mm, broad spectrum. So who I could reach through my stories as an author, I think are bigger than maybe the stories I could reach as a criminologist. Although I do feel like I've been so defined by the families I work with. So I almost think like for the chapter of my life before Buddy's death, I was just destined to be in that role for a million reasons because my survivors taught me just as much as I helped them. And now I almost feel as if their grit, their resiliency, their determination is what daily when I'm having bad days, because I have many a bad days or at least bad moments. I'll remember like, look, everybody struggles. There are people that have been through hell and back and they get up and they fight. And so on days where I don't want to, it gives me that courage. And so maybe my gift to them actually became their gift to me. And now it's like, okay, pay it forward, maybe with little ones and starting early helping people before they experience trauma or maybe right after they do, but on a bigger scale. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like this book is definitely can relate to a lot of people who are dealing with grief, especially in this time right now, where, you know, I've had friends that lost someone due to Corona, and they just don't have many answers. They never got to say goodbye. And it's almost like comforting, because at the same time, you can't tell someone how to grieve. And there there's so many different paths. When I lost my mom about like five years ago, my brother was five years younger my sister is 10 years younger than me so we're all like at different stages at life and I couldn't even explain like how my dad was probably feeling and all of us just kind of grieved in our own way Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's like oh I have someone to back me up I have the support system and not everybody has that yeah I think that's what's crazy is that when we face grief no matter what the cause there's so many similar trends and 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 ideas that are floating around and that so many unique, intimate parts of grief that people don't understand. They all want that nice Kubler Ross, you know, (laughs) stages of grief. And they want to check it off like a workbook sheet, you know, that, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. And the reality is, is that I, I assume this probably happens for you too. It could be three years later and you're listening to a song on the radio and it all comes back or the smell of a certain candle or, you know, something of that nature. And then, like you said, you grieve it by yourself so often because you want to protect the people around you. And then we forget how important it is to grieve together, even when it looks different, because I need to know that you validate my feelings. You may not feel them, but that you hear me, you know where I'm at. Cause a lot of my behavior is going to be based on where I'm at with my grief journey and knowing that like dad cares or knowing that dad doesn't always have to be strong. All of those things are so important. And I think we are scared to talk about them because we, we fight so hard to protect people and we want to make solutions like, Oh, it'll be okay. Oh, it was meant to be, you know, Oh, they're in a better place. And it's like, dear Lord, um, they're trying. People are trying, especially now, like it's five years later and I'm still grieving. I'm still in that process. And, you know, like you said, you may always song and it'll just remind you of them. Mm -hmm. And I just remember how my mom passed away on the last day of winter break. And the next day, um, I went back to school and all my friends are like thinking, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And were you craving normalcy? Did you just want normalcy? I think in my head that I just didn't think it was real. So I just went yes. back to school because I'm like, okay, she's probably just at the hospital because she struggled mm-hmm. with cancer. So she was in and out of the mm-hmm. hospital. So for the longest time, I'm like, okay, she's at the hospital. We're going to pick her up any day now. So I went back to school. Just denial of it. Like yeah. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I remember the day after Buddy passed away everybody was flying in to, to get to us. And, um, we were in a new city by ourselves. And I remember I was like, I have to go to school. I have to go to school. And everyone's going, what are you talking about? And I said, I have to go to school. I have to write up all of my things. I have my syllabus ready. I have all of my PowerPoints ready. I need to make sure that everybody has what they need for the, just the first week of school so that I can come back and teach. And I'm going to go in on Monday morning and tell everybody what happened. I'm going to tell my students that my husband died and my colleague that actually told me, right. He's like, okay, we're not going to do that. Um, I'm going to need you to like, you're just going to take a couple weeks off. And eventually thank God I got this semester off because I wasn't ready, but I thought if I could just get back into my normal role, then all the rest of it can, can, I can avoid the rest of it, the reality of the rest of it. And so it is crazy how our brains think I wanted to do the normal and there was no new normal there. There wasn't a normal anymore. So then I had to start allowing myself to say there has to be a new normal. 
And the quicker you stop saying like, I want the old Ashley back. I want the old life back. I want all of this. Then you start to really allow yourself to not only process, but then to start moving forward and, and living a life that I know your mom would be really proud of you right now. And I know my husband's up in heaven, like, yes, girl, go, (laughs) go get it because they don't want us to be living for what used to be or, you know, trying to find who we used to be. Cause we're not grief changes you. Yeah. And my friends have always been like, it's going to get harder, especially, you know, when everyone finds out they're always visiting you, they're like mm-hmm. dropping off gifts, but it's harder when they just stop and no one's checking on you anymore. But I just feel like you have to be there for your friends, whether they say like something's wrong or not, just be, just let them know, like you're there to support them and when they need it. Absolutely. And show up and mean it. And I remember, I remember the hardest question ever was people would call and say, like, what do you need? I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know how to put my <laughs> pants on right now. You know, I don't know. I don't want to brush my teeth. So I don't know what I need. And I loved it when people, and it was crazy who stepped forward and helped us. Yeah. You know, it was people that just heroes out of the woodwork and just fearless angels all around us. And, but that would just drop off groceries or would just drop off a grocery delivery gift card or something. And even now that'll check on me or tell me how proud buddy would be of me or that, um, you know, how beautiful I'm doing with Reagan and still acknowledge that life has been hard, even when it looks beautiful again, that it's just nice. Like, so like you said, stepping up and being there and meaning it and not taking offense when grief doesn't look the way you think it's going to look. <laughs> yeah. Cause I've had many moments where people, you know, look at it from the outside and are like, what is she doing? You know, or I might've said the wrong thing or acted in a way that wasn't really traditional to my character. And you just got to be so graceful with people and say, I don't wish that on my you know worst enemy. And I don't, there is no guidebook to grief. And so you just stand beside them. And when they're a little wonky, you dance with them. And when they come back to <laughs> come yeah. back down to ground, you just celebrate with them again. So I do, I think it's about being there and being graceful with people. Well, I don't know how to transition to the next part, but <laughs> we got do it, change it. <laughs> we got so many questions from my friends, from the crowd. So First question, are you ever empathetic towards criminals, murderers, because people make mistakes? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's crazy, the only reason I think I am for sure is because I've heard families that are the victims' families describe how pitiful it is sometimes where it's like, why did you do that? Right. Today, actually, I was listening to a podcast on the way home on the way to talk to you. And they said, like, she seems like a terrible human, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the the podcaster said, is it that she's a terrible human or is it that she did a really terrible thing? Because things, you know, like, especially under the influence of drugs and mental health concerns and, and these different things there, everyone's not a serial killer. You know what I mean? Sometimes there's a confrontation and I mean, sometimes things just happen and, or like you take, um, someone who's maybe a DUI, um, a homicide because of someone drinking and driving and my God, you're like, what a stupid decision, a stupid senseless decision. And you killed somebody, you know? Yeah. I feel, I feel sympathy and empathy for people. Um, I think people, many people can grow and change and feel remorse. And, um, I don't think it's always like the killers you see on TV. They're like, I'd kill again. If you let me out of here, you know, there's a lot of people who say I made some really bad decisions. I was a really bad person Mm -hmm. and they find God, they meet victims. They do something that really changes their life. So I think there's redemption in a lot of people. I don't think everybody, (laughs) but I think in a lot of people, and I think like I was telling you earlier on in, in the, in the show, you know, there's this vision that they're all going to be these monsters. And then you see this frail, young 19 year old who had an, an addiction and did something evil, horrible. But then it's like, okay, like what could happen, you know, who knows what can happen with their life and what, you know, so yeah, I do. I do. It's a lot easier to feel heartbreaking empathy for the victim's family, which I think we forget to do. But I think even victim's family sometimes would tell you um, what they did is horrific and ruined our lives, but that there's, you know, some kind of empathy for them and especially for their families. And I don't think we ever think of the offenders families because I could have only imagine, you know, Reagan being on drugs and doing something to hurt somebody else and me going, that's not the baby I raised. That's not the girl I love. And now my family has hurt another family and it's devastating. Well, this kind of leads to that question, but 
murderers know the death penalty is a consequence, but they still murder. Is Do you think the death penalty is actually effective? Do you think that there's no type of consequence that you can put out there to stop people from doing this? Yeah, I always, my students ask me this all the time because I teach <laughs> deterrence and I teach criminological theory. And one of those is that if something is swift, severe, and certain that it's going to be an effective punishment. So real quick, the professor in me will tell you the death penalty stinks for a billion reasons. But, but the death penalty is, I don't know, is necessarily designed to be a deterrent. I think it's very retributive. I think it's for revenge and for um, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of punishment. But the reality is if we had designed the death penalty to be an effective deterrent, it needs to be swift, which it's not. <laughs> so really someone's going to sit on death row, what, 20 years, 25 years? And a lot of people will tell you death row's a much nicer area than in calmer area than the rest of prison. So someone it's never going to happen quick. So swiftness is out the door. It's not certain at all, right? Less than 1%, I think, of, of murders qualify for a capital case. And then from there, so few actually get sentenced to death. So it's definitely not certain. It's super severe. You're dead. So it's super severe. But for it to be an effective deterrent, it needs to be swift, certain, and severe, and it's not. And then it has to be thought of during the commission of a crime. I know that murderers are thinking about a hell of a lot when they're killing somebody, but I do not think they're necessarily considering what their punishment's going to be. I think a lot of murders happen in this like heat of the moment, opportunistic kind of, um, you know, it's either heat of passion where they're out of their gourd while they're doing it, or I think it's uh, opportunistic. So it's just kind of sudden, oh, they, they're vulnerable. Let me attack them. I don't think that they're pausing in that rage, in that um, intoxicated state or anything and saying... I don't know that I want to die via lethal injection, you know, so I don't think that it crosses their mind. Someone asked, when I have these instant thoughts of, oh, I get so angry that I just want to run someone over, does that make me a serial killer? Which I've seen so many YouTube videos that are like, oh, these are the symptoms of a serial killer or whatever. No, go get some help. No, <laughs> call a therapist. But no, um, I think... What's wild about the human condition is that we all have such a diverse range of emotions. Uh, circumstances can really affect how we're feeling. Our mental health can affect how we're feeling. Our you know conscious state, whatever's going on. I think we all have such a potential to go dark and ugly. But then I think there's always that you know self control that holds us back from actually hurting somebody. But you're not automatically in the serial killer classification, your Cosmo quiz, just because you have the thoughts. Um, if you start to make plans, I'd be very concerned about you. But um, I'd say if it's a constant feeling, call a therapist. All of us smart ones have one. We all, we all have one. Um, someone asked when murderers, you, murderers usually plea for insanity. Does that actually work? Are they actually mm -hmm. insane? What are the tests for that? Okay. So insanity is, this is great. This is great. This is like I'm teaching. <laughs> insanity is simply a definition in court. So no doctor is going to classify somebody as insane. Um, the, the plea is a, it is a simple defense in the courtroom. I'm going to take the insanity plea. Now you have to have um, doctors prove that you didn't have the wherewithal when you were committing the crime to know what your actions would result in. You didn't have the ability, right? Or the, so the, the malin say, or the actus reus. So you didn't have the mental mindset to know what that act was going to do to somebody else. And so it's very, very, very difficult to prove that someone didn't know what the reaction was going or what that you know, action was going to cause in somebody else. Um, it's actually not used that often. You'll actually, I mean, you got to remember most cases are pled out like 93% of cases, people take a plea deal because if you tell somebody, Hey, look, you have this murder. I have your fingerprints. I have you on tape. I have a video of you leaving the scene. Most people plead guilty. So most cases, and that's not even just murder. Most cases people plead guilty because the sentence is always much more severe if you decide to go to court and your attorneys will tell you that, look, you're going to get the death penalty, man. You're going to get life in prison. If you try to go to court on this, they've got you take the deal for 10 years, take the deal for 15 years. And most people do. So you've got to remember, they're not going to be making this huge. Oh, I'm insane. If they're taking a plea deal, cause they're saying I'm guilty. They admit to guilt. 
So it's only in a small fraction of it, but again, just for listeners, insanity defense is simply a legal term. A doctor would have to prove that you had some sort of mental deficit that wouldn't allow you to understand the nature of your crime, that you didn't know what you were doing. And I feel like that's so hard to prove. If you went and got the knife, if you sent the kids away before you did it, if you like, and that's even first degree murder. People think it has to be this drawn out, like I'm going to kill you at this time. It's not first degree murder and premeditation can be simply turning around and going through a drawer and grabbing a knife out because I had to find the weapon. I just premeditated that I'm going to go find a weapon to kill you. It can be a split second kind of premeditation and the person can have first degree murder against them. Wow. I never thought about that. I was always thought like, oh, they would schedule out their entire day. No. Itinerary. <laughs> no. Imagine if you went in and you like closed your kid's bedroom doors because you didn't want them to hear it. And then you turned around and shot your spouse or something. Okay. So now you, you knew what you were doing and it might've been 15 seconds, but you went and you did something to then um, execute your crime and get away with it. This one, have you ever thought about being a criminal? You learn about how people can be twisted. Does that ever influence you? <laughs> no, but at parties I do. I'm always like a hit, <laughs> I'm always a hit person at a party because I can tell you about a bunch of serial killers and things like that. Or um, I can also talk to people about just the, the amazing families that I've met. And so people are always very intrigued by the stories. But I do always tell people, look, I, this is how people get caught. They, they kill or hurt somebody they know. They kill near their home and they kill with somebody else. So people always laugh that I'm giving away tips. But if you watch any real crime show, um, you would know those are just basic. Don't do these things because that's how people get caught. No, thank God. Even people that have broken my heart and hurt me so badly. I wish them no ill will. It does nothing but break my soul. Like you were saying, we think uh, my brain does not stop if I'm ugly to somebody. (laughs) So it's better for me just to go, you know what? I don't want them. I just read somebody quoted. I don't remember who it was recently. Some celebrity said Jim Carrey. He said, I want my enemies to eat. I just don't want them to eat at my table. So like, I don't want them to be hurt or bad things to happen to them. I just don't want them around me to kind of preserve my own. (laughs) But yeah, hopefully as of now, my biggest crime, I think, was stealing a rock from a museum when I was in first grade. My mom made me return it. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's been, I had a lot of guilt about it. So it's probably <laughs> about all I've done. And speeding. I like to speed. And I think like being a criminal, I just think that takes so much effort. And that may be, oh. make me sound lazy, but <laughs> but also I'm like, yeah. not hurting anyone. My mental health couldn't handle it. <laughs> I would be a mess. So it would not work. <laughs> yeah. And our last question, what are words that you live by? Dream big is something that I had printed on a keychain right after Buddy died because I felt like my dreams had kind of stopped and I realized they didn't, they were just going to have to be rewritten. And so I would tell people, you know, I deal with a lot of heavy stuff personally and professionally, but I, I always go back to there's beauty in the darkest of our moments and that in the darkness, you know, like you really can rediscover who you are. And as long as you're willing to get up every day and put your feet on the floor, it may not be a great day, but it's another day and another opportunity to touch somebody's life, to be a good friend, to make someone smile. And so I think keep going and dream big and have grace on yourself. That's really what I'm trying to do. I'm not that great at it. I just called a girlfriend last night and had a good cry. And she's like, you've got to talk to yourself the way you talk to your best friend. She's like, cause you wouldn't put up with me saying any of these things that one aren't true and two just aren't nice (laughs) to yourself. And so it's funny because I think even people who present that they have it all together, I'm the first to tell you I have really great moments and I think I do really great things, but it doesn't mean there isn't struggle too and bad moments. So I think just the encouragement that no matter how bad things get, chapters can end, stories can end. It can be really, really, really heavy and your heart can be broken. Don't ever stop getting up and fighting for the next story because it's coming. And sometimes it's things we never anticipate. I never thought I was going to be a children's book author. I never thought I was going to be a podcast, you know, person on, on podcasts all the time. And you just never know. You put yourself out there, dream big and do the hard work to say every day, I'm going to keep fighting 
and it's going to come back. The magic will come back. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your knowledge. I've definitely learned a lot. <laughs> Yay. Well, that's what I see. That's a teacher in me. That's a professor <laughs> in me. So anytime you guys need a lesson, you call me and I'll come, <laughs> I'll come give you a lecture. This was so much fun. And I know um, it's October and Halloween. So happy Halloween to everybody. If you guys want to follow our journey, we are on social media on all platforms at my friend Fresno. And then you can shop and play for the book, the plush, the puzzles, and some other really fun things at our website, www.myfriendfresno. And then for all you true crime fans, if you want to find me, Ashley Wellman, the scholar, you can jump on my website, www.ashleywellman.com or follow me on Twitter at Dr. Ashley Wellman. And of course, we'll leave all of our links in the description for all of you. And just thanks for listening. Oh, thank you guys for being here. (laughs) And I hope to talk to everyone soon.